You are slipping into a distorted dimension. Reality and fantasy are changing places past the event horizon. Bullies are victims, men are women, and abuse is love. You weren't here just yesterday. Reality is still out there. But to find your way back, you have to notice it. And now, the Disaffected Podcast with Joshua Slocum. Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. And we have a treat for you today. This is the first audio-only appearance of my friend, family therapist, Jake Whiskerchen, who is with ZephyrWellness.org. He's a marriage and family therapist. And what we're going to talk, we're going to talk about guns today, guns and mental health, because Jake focuses on guns and mental health as a gun owner and as a mental health professional. And I think you're going to like this conversation and find some things surprising. And I think I will too, because I always have when he and I have discussed this topic. Welcome, Jake. Thanks, dude. Um, I really appreciate you having me on. This is a, a fun topic for me, as serious as it is, because it's new to most people, and I like to believe that the organization with which I'm working, Walk the Talk America, which is WTTA.org, if people want to uh, check that out. And if you go to WTTA.org slash love, it'll take you straight to free and anonymous mental health screenings. Um, but I think that we're the only ones walking in this arena, and it's uh, slowly gaining traction. We've been at it for a few years now. I joined up in 2019. The organization started in 2018, and I can tell talk to you all about that. But um in the last uh, I don't know, 12 months or so, 18 months, we've really started making some inroads, uh, specifically with the gun community, but also with the therapy community, wherein we're, we're trying to bridge the gap. Uh, because uh, heretofore, we've sort of stood across a self-imposed chasm wherein the gun owners blame mental illness and the mental health people blame the guns and then nothing moves forward and bad policies get passed and, and it just deepens the divide. So we're trying to bridge that gap while not stepping on people's civil rights. And, and I think that's a really important distinction to make. When you hear guns and mental health, a lot of times the, the gun community will hear, ah, oh, they're coming after my firearms. It's like, no, right. this, is, this is an organization founded by firearms industry professionals, and I'm the outlier. I'm the mental health of the guns and mental health. So, gotcha. um, yeah, I think what's important, too, to, as we tee this off is that I am a firearms owning clinician. There aren't too many of us out there, at least not too many of us who are willing to speak about it. And when I, uh, when I did finally jump into the fray, I realized I had a decision to make, and that was to come out of the closet as a firearms owning practitioner because... I had been in the circles for so long and I'd heard the whispers among my peer colleagues about how, you know, guns are evil and gun violence and all this stuff and gun control. And I'm like, you know, I'm standing right here, right? Do you, do you guys know that I'm right here in the, like, I did am they, Did they know you, did they know you were a gun owner? I don't think so. Honestly, okay. um, it, it was, um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think so because I kept it private because I knew what the response would be. And I, I wasn't wrong. Um, by the way, I wasn't wrong, but anyway, let's start out giving, give, give people the lay of the land. What, um, what are the specific problems that 
you believe need to be addressed, talked about, solved? What are we getting wrong in conversations about guns and mental? I mean, I we could do 16 shows on this and we not could. cover it all. Yeah. But why don't you give people the broad outline? Where are you coming from? What problem do you see that you want to solve? Uh, the problem is very, very simplified, overly simplified, and I'm going to be intentional about that. It's, it's twofold. Uh, one side of the coin is mental health practitioners don't understand gun culture. Uh, largely, we look at it as monolithic. It's a bunch of old white dudes with beards and bellies hanging over their belts, dressed in camouflage, uh, looking like Duck Dynasty, and uh, hoorah about how they blow things up in the desert uh, or the forest. You know, people live in the forest, too. And so that doesn't beget a really warm, welcoming, non-judgmental environment for firearms owners when they want to come in to get care. In fact, it often pushes them away. Uh, and politics notwithstanding, uh, it's, just, it's just not an enjoyable experience <clears throat> when the firearms community, and this is the flip side of that coin, firearms community believes that if it goes in and seeks care, they're going to lose their rights. And so... What I'm trying to do with Walk the Talk America is teach practitioners a, a, a more culturally sensitive, culturally humble approach to gun owners when they come into to practice and to the firearms community to demystify what counseling is altogether. Uh, a lot of religion plays into this too because a lot of firearms owners tend to be conservative, not all, by the way. Uh, in fact, there's a large and growing uh, percentage of uh, liberal gun owners but uh, typically conservatives who own guns tend to be religious and they tend to be of the Christian stripe and Christianity has long poo-pooed psychology. So, so there's that too. And I want to demystify a lot of that, say it's not something of the occult. And also to say, look, I'm not going to pick up the bat phone. I don't have a bat phone in my office. But if I had one, I wouldn't pick it up and just tattle on you to the authorities and have them come take your property. Um, and we can get into red flag laws and all that. So it's, it, it sounds to me like one of the core problems here is that there is there's a question of from the gun there's that there's mutual mistrust yeah that that the practitioners mistrust people who have guns and the gun owners mistrust the practitioners and believe that they may act in some sort of babysitter capacity to take things away so that sounds like one of the primary conditions of the situation is that yeah. right yeah i don't know if it's mistrust on the practitioner's part i think it's more misunderstanding okay um, so it's, it's very weird for as much as we toss about the phrases non-judgmentalism and lifelong learning and everybody's got the capacity to grow and learn, we, we tend to get very rigid and very judgmental in our belief systems and our ideologies and our ideological views of the world. And then we, uh, we don't want to step out of them. Uh, a lot of that's just uh, sheer laziness. Some of it's willful ignorance. Some of it's just we don't need to because we're overwhelmed with demand anyway. So it's like, well, why, don't I, why do I need to go study up on this other demographic? My practice is full. Um, and my, my pushback to that is a Pew Research study came out in 2017, and we know the numbers have grown since then, but it says that uh, one, in, one in two, for all intent and purpose, 47% of all Americans either own a gun or live with somebody who does. So that's half of your clientele that's going to walk through the door. And I understand those demographics shift based on locale. So if yeah. you're in uh, deep blue San Francisco with all its restrictions, you're not going to encounter a whole bunch of gun owners. But if you're in northern Nevada or Montana or Missouri, you're going to encounter a whole bunch of them, north of 80% probably. So it's it, you can't afford to be ignorant of the culture. And the culture is very wide, very broad, and very diverse. And that may stun some people, but I can get more into that too. And then for the gun owners, yes, it is a mistrust. They, they've been fed a lot of rhetoric over the years, a lot of which came from the NRA that said uh, – you know, that 
those people of the medical profession broadly are going to come after you. And in, in one famous instance, I think it was in like 2018, the NRA uh, tweeted, uh, doctors, you need to stay in your lane. And of course, that riled up the doctors who said, this is our lane. And what did they have a point, though? Did the um, NRA have a point? Sort of. Uh, And and, and this is where the nuance comes in. It's as as clunky and awkward as it was. um, The the medical profession doesn't understand, right? They don't understand gun culture. And that's the point. Um, They did it horribly. And it was super judgmental and condescending. Uh, contemptuous even, I would say. And the, the where it originates is we've got a lot of people in the medical professionals and the and, and medical profession and the psychological profession who do research on gun violence. And I'll put gun violence in air quotes for the listening audience who can't see me. Yeah. Um, and the gun violence centers on typically injury and death via homicide, and it almost exclusively neglects suicide. And suicide by firearm is where I'm concerned. Now, Walk the Talk America at its core is a suicide prevention awareness organization specifically designed for the gun community. And the origin story of that is that the founder, Michael Sedini, who is a very good friend of mine, he lost the president of his own company back in um, 2009 um, uh, to firearm suicide. And what Mike and his okay. family did for three generations was they imported firearms to America from overseas. So if you had a gun that you wanted to sell in America and you're from, say, Brazil, they would uh, do, handle all the marketing, the, um, the importing, the, the, the distribution, all the sales, uh, the wholesale, whatnot. And, and that was their gig. And so for a long, long time, Mike's family... Uh, imported. It was called Eagle Imports. They imported guns into the U.S. And they were one of the small guys. And Mike likes to tell this, so he's not here, so I'm going to speak on his behalf. But um, they were one of the small guys. And every year they did between sixty and 80,000 sales uh, of individual firearms. They didn't have any government contracts. They didn't have any police or law enforcement contracts. So you think about that over time. That's that's a hell of a lot of guns to be selling in America. So not not small by numbers, but when you compare it to, say, the Glock of the world or the Ruger mm-hmm. or the Smith & Wessons, like, it's nothing. Uh, so you got millions yeah. and millions and millions of guns sold every year. Anyway, um, president of the company, uh, he got a DUI. And near as we can tell, there was no note left, unfortunately, as okay. there is often in suicides. Uh, near as we can tell, he thought incorrectly in his head that his career was over because of this DUI. He'd never be able to be around guns again. So he <sighs> took his own life. With one of their own firearms, by the way. Uh, so, Jesus. So what ended up happening was, uh, and this is the way Mark, Mike tells the story, uh, they've moved on. They had the funeral, nobody talked about it, and they moved on. And through a chance occurrence, one day in 2018-ish, um, he and his national sales manager were out at a, you know, celebrating a sale, and uh, they met this lady who was by herself, and they invited her over to the table, and they were just talking, and she was gun neutral. And she says, they're, they're, they're complaining, this problem, guns, mental health, blah, blah, blah. She says, well, if you know the problem, it, you guys must work with the gun community to, to like, solve it, right? And they were like, no, we don't, but we should. And so Mike had this idea that his company could, like, donate a dollar per gun to mental health broadly. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, we'll just thought it was going to be very clean yeah. and easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, doing something, right? Um, and uh, and from there, the the 
the thing started and, and the vision was created. But what he pr- quickly got pushed off of as he started his research and consultation with other mental health professionals was stop looking at mass shootings, start looking at suicides. And the reason for that is because as the, the pie graph uh, breaks out, roughly 60 to 62% of all gun deaths, i.e. gun violence, is suicide by firearms. Okay, I, I'm glad. I was just going to ask you that. I thought I remembered learning recently that the majority it was of deaths probably in the su- article I sent you <laughs> that I wrote. Yeah, I I, I was I was uh, surprised. Yeah, I, I I knew it was a lot, but I didn't know it was more than half. Yeah, so so it is, and um and uh, so that's that's gun gun deaths. The pie chart of gun deaths is roughly sixty to sixty two percent, depending on the year is suicides. The rest okay. of gun deaths break out something like this. Uh, 28 to 30% are homicides of various nature, and the remaining balance are negligent or unintentional or law enforcement. So there's that that slice there. Now, within homicides, mm-hmm. within the category of homicides, do they get to the fine detail? Uh, do they uh, account for the percentage of those that were legitimate self-defense uh, broken out from uh, manslaughter or murder? Um, no, I haven't seen that, okay. but I'm sure it exists somewhere. But but what is important is that mass shootings comprise three-tenths of a percent of all gun deaths. Of course. So that's all gun deaths. That's not even the, the homicides. Obviously, they're all homicides. Right. But um, three-tenths of a percent. But what gets our attention to the media? Um, school shootings. Right? Oh, my God, the guns, the guns. Yeah. What are we, when are we going to save America's children and do something right. about these terrible guns? And that's legit. But it's not going to move the needle. Well, of course, it's uh, yeah. I don't mean right. to. I don't mean to suggest that right. I think it's funny that that kids are. Uh, I, I have I have a lot of thoughts about this too. Uh, go on, go on. Yeah. So, Mike got pushed away from the the, the homicide slash um, mass shooting thing and towards suicide, and so he formed this organization. And in 2018, it became real. And he reached out to. He was just basically Jerry Maguiring everyone who's like, I need help. <laughs> who's coming with me? And um, one of the letters he sent was to Mental Health America because of all his research, he found exactly one organization, and it was that one, that took a gun-neutral position. Everyone else was anti. And so he's, he reached out to him, said he found a position paper, um, and said, I'm interested. Would you be interested in talking to me? So they had a, a conference of some sort. He went to L.A. or San Diego or something, Shows up, he's poking around. There's a lady at the table handing out name badges, and uh, she says, "Hi, can I help you?" She says, "Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Mike Sedini. I'm the, I'm the gun guy." She goes, "Oh, we didn't thought you'd show up, uh, or we didn't think you'd show up." And so uh, that that kicked off a, a warm relationship between Walk, Walk the Talk America and uh, Mental Health America. And Mental Health America now is the the organization that powers the free and anonymous mental health screenings. So. I, uh, I host a podcast called Noggin Notes, and I've been doing it for several years now. And in 2019, I was texting one of my friends who's a good longtime friend from college who manages his mother's uh, retail store and range here in Reno called Reno Guns and Range. And he, Jordan and I have talked about this for years, about how we can connect the two communities, but we didn't really know how, and we weren't super motivated. And, and uh, he says, have you heard of Walk the Talk America? No. So I looked up them. And them turned out to be Mike, basically running a one-man show. He's got a board of directors, and I'm now on it. But I, texted, yeah. I, I, I emailed him. I was like, hey, Guns and Mental Health, I want you on my podcast. And he's like, absolutely. 
And uh, so he comes on, we chat for an hour and a half, and then we, you know, end the podcast, we keep chatting for another couple hours. And in that conversation, we decided that it was, it was necessary that I have to be part of the organization. Now, the, the asterisk here is that up to that point, I had been closeted, and uh, I, didn't, I didn't want to come out of the closet as a gun-owning clinician uh, because I knew there was judgmentalism. But I realized that if I was going to do this work, I had to take it seriously, and I had to walk in both worlds comfortably, so I did. And uh, I became a part of the organization, and at that time, I was also chairing my licensing board here in Nevada for marriage and family therapists and clinical professional counselors. And what that did is it put me in touch with several other behavioral health licensing boards. And I thought, you know what would be a good idea? Um, we should teach practitioners about gun culture so that they can be more competent when these folks enter their offices. And these folks is not just Duck Dynasty. It's, uh, it's random run-of-the-mill uh, single mom who wants to defend herself in the bad part of town. It's uh, your law enforcement. It's your um, yep. EMTs. It's uh, military, uh, retired and active. It's their spouses. Like, so this is a big, big, big demographic. It's highly diverse. And um, I thought this is a great way to do it. And the way we'll do it was we'll give them continuing education credits for attending our courses. And boy, was that a success. So over the next couple of years, we've run several classes. And um, we, we've now put about 400 people through that cultural competence training. And that's very cool. But what's equally cool is the firearms community has embraced it because so many people in the firearms community know somebody who took his or her own life with a gun. It's very prevalent in military culture. What do we know? What do we know demographically about the people who do? I'm, I'm going to assume that it's largely men yep. who kill themselves with a gun. Yep. Uh, well, we know, we know that women kill themselves in different ways. Uh, what for, else do we women, know about? It's usually poison, by the way. So there's, there's poisoning. Poison pills. Which, which counts yeah. as strangulation is also um, uh, suffocation, if you will. Poisoning is pills and overdoses. Uh, yeah. hang, uh, I'm sorry, uh, sharp, sharp objects, high, high places. Those are all very, very small uh, yeah. parts of the, the pie chart and then firearms. So of the, so what do we know chart, about, about this demographic? I mean, obviously yeah. they're going to be different people, but they're going to share some things in common. Do we know any yeah. of what those uh, are? So the lethality matters and <clears throat> the lethality of using a firearm is much higher than the lethality of an overdose intentional or unintentional. Yes. So people who take their own lives with guns usually know what they're doing. And that's why military and police are so, um, we, we need to pay attention to them because they know how to do it the first time. Uh, so there's a statistic yes. floating out there that says people who survive a suicide attempt are 90% um, likely to die by other means later, meaning they don't, again, attempt their own lives. So if we can prevent somebody okay. from taking their own life the first time, they're going to not do they're, it again. They're probably going to die but again. But if you use anyway. a gun, okay. likelihood of death is very, very high. Uh, so here's here's another striking stat. So think of that pie chart again. Instead of firearms deaths, do suicides. So all suicides, 50.5% on average are by gun. Okay. So half the pie chart is is firearms. So that you, you talk about 24-ish, 25,000 suicides a year in America. Half of those are by gun. Does this roughly break down... I'm sorry, I, I misspoke. Forty-eight, forty-eight thousand a year. Uh, half, half of those, twenty-four-ish, twenty-five are by gun. Twenty. Okay. Does this roughly break down by sex? Do roughly mm -hmm. equal numbers of men and women kill themselves every year, uh, or not? In in suicide, no. Um, and men, well, by firearm, no. Uh, men take their lives much. Suicide. I mean, suicide yeah. altogether. What's the sex ratio? 
You know, I I, I think more men. I think head. more men than women. I'll look it up while you're talking. But themselves, but I'm not sure the. I ratio. know it's I know it's true for firearms, um, and I'm embarrassed that okay. I don't know that. But I'll look it up. It, it's it. fine. Any anybody anybody can look that up on their own. We don't That's need true. to uh, uh, take the, the show. time to do that. <laughs> what do we need? What do do we know anything? Do we know of any commonalities and correlations of the psychology of people? Who end up killing themselves with guns? Typically, no, because they're dead, and um, they they often don't leave notes. And if they do leave the notes, they're overly scrutinized, and uh, we can't make heads or tails of it anyway. So okay. uh, those those data are, if they're out there, they're not super useful. What I can okay. say with a pretty high degree of certainty, after having done this for as long as I have, that the link between guns and mental health is through suicide. And I believe, and this has been corroborated by some other people who share the same belief, if you focus on mental wellness, not mental illness, mental wellness, keeping people well, and that includes all the things, not just professional psychotherapy, but it's knowing how you tick, having good hobbies and habits, being involved in your community, having a robust social support network, having a good diet, sleeping well. If you do those kinds of things, your overall health improves and there's less likelihood that you're going to slide into something like suicidal ideation or homicidal ideation. So by extension, we will probably impact the homicide rate, not just the suicide rate. But if we invert that and just go after homicides, we're probably not going to reach the suicides. So goes my theory anyway. And nobody's challenged me on that. It seems sound. Yeah, it does seem sound. This is a good time for us to take a quick break, and we're going to come right back afterward. Kevin and Josh work themselves to the bone to bring you dark and disturbing content every week. There are starving listeners overseas who get no podcasts at all. Show appropriate gratitude today by making a donation at patreon.com forward slash disaffected or at subscribestar.com forward slash disaffected. Do it for Mother I wonder if you would indulge me, Jake, um, because I bet there are people listening to this who uh, may be in a similar position. So I don't own a gun, but I am considering doing so. As you know, I am a former hardcore leftist liberal. I was very anti-gun. I did believe all of the things that guns were the problem. I did not respect the Second Amendment. Somehow, I'm not quite sure how I did this because uh, there's no point being falsely modest. I'm pretty intelligent. But somehow I managed to completely fail to understand that the Second Amendment is in fact operative. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, I mean, you you have acknowledged in another podcast or two that you may or may not have been a part of an informal cult. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, (laughs) which is true. but my mind has changed uh, significantly. I mean, I, I think I understand this issue much more clearly. Um, to where I am now is um, not only do I uh, accept that the Second Amendment is operative, but I am in, I am in absolutely in favor of it. I think the right to self defense is utterly paramount. I won't compromise on it. And it has become it's become clear to a lot of people. Uh, that there are a lot of situations in life where you are the only one who can defend yourself. Mm-hmm. There are going to be situations where you have to be able to save your own life. So I've been considering getting gun training and becoming a firearm owner. And here's where it becomes a sticking point. Uh, um, as you know, and as listeners know, over the course of my life, I've suffered from major depression. 
obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, at one point, I think I had borderline personality disorder. Uh, so I know all about emotional dysregulation. And I have, I have not made a serious suicide attempt since I was about 13 years old. And I am, I'm not even sure I'm not even sure if my attempt at, at 13 years old was a genuine attempt or more of an attempt to get help. It doesn't matter now. It's a long time ago. Mm -hmm. The only other time in my adult life when I, and I did not make any moves toward it, but I contemplated it more seriously than I had since I was a kid was the time when I was, as I call it, divorcing my mother. But that time passed very quickly. I, I was not an actively suicidal person for very long. And I, I didn't even make a plan, yada, yada, yada. But I worry, what should people like me be asking of ourselves and how should we be checking and inventorying our, our ability to be responsible? What should a person like me be thinking about? Am I a danger to myself? Or, I mean, I realize you're not, I'm not asking you to treat me on the air. <laughs> I am okay? analyzing you as you speak. No. Um, well, I mean, and, you know, yeah. but, but there are people like, there are a lot of people like me. What should yeah. we be thinking about? And what do you as a professional candidly think about people like that? What do you have concerns? And, and if so, what are they? Uh, short answer is no, but I love the way that you phrased the question. Um, there, there are considerations. Training is certainly one of them. I love that you use responsible because one of the things that our organization is trying to do, and we are, we're actually really successful in it, along with some other organizations who are pro-gun and pro-advocacy, we, we don't do the policy thing. We have to be aware of policies like red flag laws and background checks and that kind of thing because they, right. they're care inhibitors. But um, we, we don't do policy. We just are educational. So some of the policy advocacy gun organizations are changing the language within the gun community from safe which is watered down and very subjective to responsible. And we define responsible specifically when it pertains to storage as preventing unauthorized access. So that could be obviously the burglar who wants to steal your stuff. It could also be the angsty teenager living in your home. It could be the teenager's friend across the street who may or may not be angsty. Um, and it could be yourself. If you're in a time of crisis, you should be prevented from accessing your firearms. And there are many ways to do that. This is exactly what I'm getting to. What, yeah. you know, how, how does one go about thinking about that, right? Well, knowing yourself really helps. And that's not tongue in cheek. That's, that's not a throwaway statement. I, I, I work very hard at knowing myself. I work very hard at helping other people understand themselves. Um, emotional functioning is at the core of most of that. But if you know yourself well enough to know when you're off kilter, then you're probably also self-aware enough to ask for help. And some of that help may be in the form of saying, hey, can somebody take my guns for a minute? And that's where it starts to get sticky. So mm -hmm. certain laws in certain states differ from one another. And without going too far into the weeds, which I could, I could give a master class on it. Um, some places won't just let you hand your guns over to another person without going through a background check. Background checks are expensive. They're also inhibitive um that are inhibitory uh and you you may both become felons in the process if you don't follow the, the right rules and, and regs so what we in, encourage is things like changing this the combination of the government's honestly. business i'm sorry i'm just it's sitting not, here thinking this is none of the government's, government's fucking policy. business um but they've made it their business now it's our job as citizens to go tell them to stop making it their business yeah. but but uh but anyway um if you 
if you change the code on the safe, uh, you're you're protected, right? You hand that over to your to your spouse or whatever. Uh, yep. Um, have have a friend come over and change it. Now there's there's different laws and interpretations of laws that say, well, you know, like in California, if you change the code on the safe, uh, the spouse then takes possession, quote unquote, of the guns, and uh, therefore yeah. that's not legal. Well, okay, well that's that's weedy, and Rhyming I want to get into the weeds. Yeah, but we have options. I can here, tell right? you, I'm not going to be getting into any of those weeds personally. Yeah, yeah, I'm no. just going to do my business. Yeah, well, yeah, and, there, and then there's that, right? So, so again, without being glib, um, we we have options here. You can you can dismantle firearms. Um, you can take an active part like the bolt or the barrel or the firing pin, and it doesn't matter how many guns you own. You can fit 26 firing pins into a baggie, and now the gun's disabled. Some people will say, well, you know, they can just go buy another one. So it's like, yeah, but if you're that intent. Yeah, but it, but it is an obstacle and it, and it does cost it time. And that, well, and so we talk about time and space, right? And, and in that moment of often it's impulsivity um, and the impulsivity yes. could be an hour, it could be a minute, but it's, it's often impulsive to, to take one's own life. Just creating the time and space is enough. Now, beyond that, though, there's, there's the psychological ramification of knowing that somebody cared enough to, to do it for you, right? So that in and of itself can help be a protective factor and keep somebody alive uh, through okay. that attempt uh, or desired attempt. So uh, we talk a lot about this in the podcast. I don't have to get into it here. We have a podcast called Guns and Mental Health. You can check that out wherever podcasts are. Yes, yeah, you should. Yeah. let. Yeah, actually, since you're on it right now, uh, and you can do it again at the end, but let people know everywhere that you are that you want them to be able to find you. Yeah. You've got nog, Noggin Notes. You've got, go ahead, tell no, them. Noggin Notes is the mental health only podcast. Um Guns and Mental Health is the Guns and Mental Health podcast. Mike Sudini, the, the founder of the organization, and I co-host that. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Jake Wisk, J-A-K-E-W-I-S-K. And um, my company name, because uh, I own and operate a, an outpatient counseling agency here in Nevada called uh, Zephyr Wellness, is ZephyrWellness.org. You mentioned that at the beginning. So that's pretty much it. And then there's okay. accompanying social medias along the way. There's a YouTube channel and for Zephyr Wellness as well as for WTTA. Uh, there's Instagram pages and so forth. So cool. Anyway, I'm going to take a drink of water. That makes for good audio. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and now I'm not choking on my own spit anymore, at least. So, so that's part of what we're doing. We're not just paying lip service to this. We're, we're actually getting out in the community. One of the things that uh, I'll show you on the screen here, but the audience can't see, but you can see it on the website is flyers. It's a little, uh, oh, I don't know what this is, four by six or something. Um, it says mental health. It's okay to talk about it. It's got our logo on it. And uh, take mm -hmm. a free and anonymous mental health screening at wtta.org slash love. So this sits passively on the counters at ranges and retail stores, gun shops, if you will. And on the mm -hmm. back side of the flyer is a bunch of white space where it says, be mindful of your mental health. Mental health matters. There's the crisis call line nationally. There's a text line. But then the white space is designed for companies in the local area who are gun friendly to stamp. Yep. And this one is stamped with Zephyr Wellness because that's my company. Yep. And so now that it, that says mental health, I'm sorry to jump yeah. in, but but it's offering mental health screening, which suggests that there's something to be screening for, mm -hmm. and some actions that should or should not be taken as a result of what is found. Yes. What are we screening for, and what are the potential do and don'ts that may come out of that screening? Let's table that for just a second because I okay. want to finish talking about the flyer. So that's one flyer. It sits in the shops and ranges. The other flyer, it looks very similar. Um, slightly different because it doesn't have the um, the localized stamp on it, but it's going into packaging of firearms materials, including guns themselves. So for the listening audience who's never bought a gun before, you buy a brand new gun, it comes in a box, you, you open up the box, 
here's your gun. There's your federally mandated cable lock that is required to be sold with every gun. And there's the warranty information. And on top is our flyer. Now, some organizations like uh, Arms Corps, which produces both guns and ammo, are starting to print the screenings link right on their packaging, on the exterior. So you buy a box of bullets from Arms Corps, and it says, take it free and anonymous mental health screening at WTTA.org slash love. So we're getting this into the hands of gun owners, more or less against their will, but it's a passive introduction <laughs> to, hey, guns and mental health can coexist. They're not mutually exclusive. So yeah. question about the screenings. So Mike, uh, Mike tells this really cute story about his, uh, his daughter, uh, when she was 12, I think, uh, she came home one day and she says, uh, I, I think I have anxiety, Dad. And uh, <laughs> Mike, uh, raised in a New Jersey Italian family, uh, very Catholic, uh, he says, there's a time, if I were to have asked that or said that when I was a kid, uh, I would have been greeted with, I will give you something to have anxiety about. And that was where <laughs> the conversation ended. So he says, Fortun- fortunately, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that my, my daughter thought enough of me to ask me about this. But he says, I told her, hey, uh, go to the website, take the, take the anxiety screening. And there's 14 screenings for different things. Two of them are in Spanish, the anxiety and the, the depression are in Spanish. And um, so she says, okay. So a couple days pass. And uh, she comes back and goes, hey, dad, I took the thingy. And, uh, and he says, he's like, what? <laughs> he says, uh, the, 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 the screening, I, I took it and I only have mild anxiety. That's good, right? He's like, yeah, that's great. So sometimes the screening doesn't necessarily need to prove that you have uh, a mental illness that needs attention by a professional. It can be enough to just assuage fears that you need attention from a professional, as it was with Mike's daughter. Um, but at the end of that, if the, if the number is a little higher than you would like it to be, it's private. It's free. It's anonymous. Gun owners like anonymity, and everybody likes free. So what you do with that information is up to you. What I wish we could do, and this is our goal now for the next couple of years for Walk Talk America, is to create a directory of gun-friendly clinical licensees in every state so they can go straight there and go, I don't have to worry about who I'm picking from this directory. I know that I'm going to go in there and be cared for, and I'm going to, my, my, whether it's a hobby or a profession or just personal self-defense is going to be acknowledged in its full legitimacy, and I don't have to worry about hiding things from my therapist. So that's what we want to do. Unfortunately, we're not there yet, um, but what we are inching toward is at least an acknowledgement that people need to start checking in on themselves so they don't take their own lives at maximum, but along the way there's a whole continuum of of undesirable behaviors, including addiction and violence and broken marriages and bad parenting and all sorts of things. So it's not just about suicide. Yeah, well, an addiction, I mean, it would, it seems to me intuitively that one of the most dangerous combinations, one of the most dangerous addictions to mix with, with um, having a gun on your person is, is alcoholism. Alcohol. Yep, absolutely. Um, you know, and I say that as a, as a, a sober alcoholic, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, of, of almost, you know, there's lots of drugs out there. There's speed, there's, there's Coke, there's methamphetamine, there's hallucinogens, there's, there's all sorts of stuff out there, but I know of many of which I have sampled, none of which have I ever experienced being as the ability of alcohol to completely take away your inhibitions and, and prompt you to act immediately is unparalleled by anything else I've experienced. You're right. And, and that's something we need to work on collectively as a nation, honestly, but we, we also need to work on it in the gun community. Um, something fascinating, and I promise I'll address this, but something fascinating I've discovered is that, so I was a lifelong gun owner 
um, been around in my whole life, um, hunting for sure. But I was raised in a family full of cops too, but, but I was never in the culture. I didn't understand it. And I was in your camp where it's like, nobody needs an AR 15. Um, I own an AR 15, but I was like, nobody needs an AR 15. It's like, I, I got into this culture in 2019 and started hanging out with some of the, the gun people I, I now know and love and respect and call friends. And boy, did my worldview shift. Um, I mean, I, abs- I would call myself a Second Amendment absolutist at this point because, uh, to your earlier point, nobody should ever be deprived of that right. Uh, in fact, the government put, <laughs> when we founded this country, put that right in the Bill of Rights. You hear patients' yep. Bill of Rights, right? Things that are not to be violated. So the government should protect those rights, not negotiate them. We didn't. We didn't get. And this we right should stop negotiating with the government. We, we should for a lot, a lot of different things. Free speech is among them too. Uh, and again, this gets covered in the podcast a lot. But um, what I've what I've found is the incredible diversity in this in this group, and the incredible <laughs> use of alcohol. Um, so you bring up alcohol, and um, and what alcohol does to the brain is it really numbs the prefrontal cortex. And when that happens, if you watch my emotional functioning videos, which you can find at zephyrwellness.org, just type in emotions and it'll pop right up with a series of videos. When you numb the prefrontal cortex, meaning our, our thinker, our, our uh, frontal lobe, is it inhibits all the reason, logic, rational uh, analysis that we have, and it allows the limbic system to come forward. And the limbic system is where the emotions live. So if your emotions happen to be bitter, angry, contemptuous, self-loathing, shame-driven, or <laughs> sad, uh, <laughs> get some elbows and ribs here. Stop telling me about myself. <laughs> Fingers pointing. Um, <laughs> there's there's no there's no override mechanism anymore. So that's why when you when you're at the bar, you know, there's a lot of I love you, man, and, and fights. Oh and, God, yes. Right. Uh, it's also why when people do take their own lives, overwhelmingly the drug on board is alcohol. Uh, I, Jake, I would have to think this is it's an incredibly sad thing, but I have to believe that a lot of these people who are drunk when they take their lives, if they had sobered up the next morning, they wouldn't have done it. Yeah, they would have recognized they would have recognized that that was a momentary flash of overwhelming emotion prompted and exacerbated by drink i mean oh my god how many how many times has that happened in your own personal life where you have a bad night after a break repeatedly next morning and you go whew glad i didn't do anything stupid right yeah or what what stupid thing did i do what did i put on twitter you know who did i text (laughs) you know i'm I'm getting red-faced um but uh but, but to your point about alcohol, though, we would like to get to where the alcohol industry got with the drunk driving campaign. They weren't compelled by government to do that. They did it themselves That's true. because they, came, they didn't yep. want to be compelled by .gov. So yes. gun, gun industry is very, very weird. I think, I think what I've learned over the last couple of years is that it's spent its a, a large portion of its existence in recent time, uh, I don't know, 40 years, on its heels defending itself. And it's never had the opportunity to go on offense and do uh-huh. and do well legitimate ag- advocacy first of all but also to do cool public relations campaigns like this and and that it's so steeped into the culture now that you just don't talk about mental health or mental illness because they whoever they is the gun grabbers or whatever are going to come after you that they the 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 big big manufacturers just don't want any part of it and it's so sad because they could move the needle on this um 
if I could wave a wand, it would be over all the big boys in the industry to go, yep, this makes sense. Let's print it on the box. And at bare minimum, when the next lawsuit is filed against the manufacturer for the gun that did the harm, they can go, hey, look, look at our boxes. We tried. We made the effort. Everybody gets one yeah. of these. And they just, they can't see it. So, yeah. so there's that. But, you know, um, back to your original question, though, because I want to close the loop on that. Uh, somebody who's new, wants to, wants to own a gun, is considering it for the first time. One of the things that we experienced in 2020 and 2021 with the big buying spree that occurred um, is ranges were closed because, because of COVID, um, and people couldn't get their training. Now, eventually, some court cases were, were fought locally and, and regionally where those were deemed essential businesses because it was a Second Amendment right to defend oneself. You don't get to tell people they can't go purchase firearm or train. But there was also an ammo shortage, and ammo is very expensive. And if you're, uh, it got very expensive. So if you're one of the people who's, you know, really affected by some of the civil unrest, you live in a poor neighborhood, the cops may not show up at all because they just don't, uh, or because they're understaffed and overworked. You go, well, I am my own first responder. I'm going to take this into my own hands. I'm going to get a gun and protect my family. Where are you going to get your training? Are you going to be able right. to afford the ammo? Can you afford a storage unit for it? Can you afford a locking device? Did you get a holster even? Or is your toddler going to pick it up and negligently fire around? So all those questions came to the forefront, and, and that's how I'd answer your question. If you're serious about purchasing a firearm, first of all, don't listen to the review. I mean, yeah, follow the reviews, but don't listen to what people are suggesting. Get one that you like, that fits your hand, that you're comfortable with. That's that's the number one thing. I'm, I'm betting that this is advice you would get at a gun range yeah. uh, and a gun well, shop well, as well. We, we still no, have a lot not. of okay. we still have a lot of old school mentality in the community, as I've discovered, and there's a lot of misogyny too. Where it's like, you don't okay. want that thing, young lady. You want the one with the pink grips. You know, it's like, oh, stop. So have your own personal constitution. It can be very intimidating walking into a firearms dealer anyway, just because it's new, right? It, you just don't yep. know, right? It's, it's always intimidating walking into some place for the first time. Um, but do do your research on this stuff know what you think you want allow your mind to be changed of course but um then get all the stuff that goes with it get the storage device sign up for a training class i don't call it, i don't care if it costs you 250 dollars. you're already dropping 500 on a gun anyway yep spend spend the 80 dollars on a holster spend the 100 on the on the quick access safe make sure it's not floating around your house bolt it to something um spend the money on the on the training course Buy ammunition so you can train on your own. You don't have to necessarily, once you get your, your fundamental training down, go train on your own and, and do it with groups, do it in, with partners. That also creates a good, safe community where you can all rely on each other um, and, and have friends and they can critique and, and help. So um, become part of the, the environment. And that's one of the exhortations we got from a guy named Johnny Pirelli who wrote a book called The Behavioral Science of Firearms. Uh, what Pirelli did is he's he also a guest on our podcast. Um, he wrote this book not just because he's interested in it, but because he was more or less compelled to. He's a psychologist in New Jersey, and he was getting asked to do gun evals prior to uh, people who wanted to apply for their gun permits. And he's like, I don't know what a gun eval is. So he starts looking it up. Can't find any literature. There's no research. So he created it. And now he's also creating a cultural competence course for his own people, uh, just like we have. And he's he's become a good kind of a, a de facto mentor. Um but what we found is that this stuff doesn't exist, and people just don't know. So um, 
when, when you go out, um, be humble, be curious. But one of the exhortations he gave is if you want, if you're a practitioner and you want to do this for a living, you want to deal with the gun community. And like I already said, it's half of who you're going to come in contact with. Spend time at ranges, spend time at retail stores. You don't have to become a shooter. You don't have to become a gun owner, but you need to understand the dynamics and you need to understand how they work, how to talk some, especially if you're a remote operator, say for example, on a suicide lifeline type of deal. Yeah. And you're blind and the person's like, I have the gun, it's sitting right here, I'm highly suicidal. You need to be competent enough to ask, what kind of gun? Is it loaded? How is it loaded? Can you can you open the slide and discharge the round without hurting yourself? Is, okay, set it aside. You know, like, is it a revolver? Right. There's no slide to pull on a revolver. You need you to be conversant this. with this. Yes. yes, you do. Yes, you do. Um, what I'd like to do, if you have, um, I think we're going to go a little longer. These audio episodes are usually about a half an hour, but there's a, there's a little more I want to get to. And if you've got another 15 to 20 minutes, Jake, what I'd like to do is take a break here yep. uh, for the audience, come back and, and round out what I want to come into on the other side is to talk uh, a bit about the mass shootings as well, uh, I, because everybody is talking about it. And I think there's a lot of uh, really big misunderstanding. So we're going to take a quick break and then we will come back and finish up the show. I just texted Heather that I'd be uh, about 15 minutes. Oh, okay. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Cause she, she needed a half hour lead time on the, on the food. So I said, probably. Gotcha. Me. Okay. All right. Then let's get right back into it. I appreciate um, you've given me a lot of time today. Um, we're back. So Jake, I was noticing something at, as I was looking at the latest mass shooting event with a young man. I don't know how to pronounce his name, Mr. Crimo or Crimo yeah. is the latest one. And I know you mentioned the statistic that it's about three tenths of a percent of all gun deaths are mass shootings. So we already know that what we are shown on the media and the emotional atmosphere and inflation is extraordinary. Uh, these things are made to seem far more numerous than they actually are. But there, there are so many other problems with our conversation about this. And the one that's bothering me right now, it's been bothering me for a while. You either hear it from officials involved in uh, investigating these shootings, or you hear this from people who are discussing it. And they say, no apparent motive. Mm. And I just sit there and say, are you kidding me? Uh, so what do, what do we find typically? We find... These are young men mm -hmm. who are out there. It's almost every once in a while, there's a woman, but it's very rare. It's almost yeah. always young men. And everybody wants to talk about the gun and they want, how did he get a hold of these guns? Should 18 year olds have guns? Should 20 year olds have guns, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they coupled this with no apparent motive. And the idea seems to be, and I think that this is a mythology that must be serving an emotional purpose for us. We want this to continue. We're heavily invested in it for some reason. I don't know exactly all the reasons, but we really want, we really want it to be true that there's no rhyme or reason. It's just utterly random. And because it's utterly random and we can't predict it and we can't do anything about it, then we need to take those bad, dirty guns off the street. Mm -hmm. What do we actually find when we look at these people? So here's what I find when I'm looking at Mr. Crimo or Mr. Crimo. And I'm going to be talking about this on the TV show this weekend. I found exactly what I expected to find in his domestic situation. I found a mother who, and I'm speaking for myself, I'm, I'm not asking you to endorse me here as a mental health professional. I find a mother who um, 
looks to me like she has borderline personality disorder. Why do I say that? And why do I feel like I can say that from a distance? Because I know what patterns are. And I see a description from people who knew the family of a woman who left her child at baseball games and practices until the coach actually had to call and demand that she come down and get it. He described her as acting as though her children were a nuisance to her. He described her getting fractious and into disputes and fights with other parents and coaches. And we see her social media where this woman who is in her late thirties is sitting there with her tits out, posing at the camera like a stripper and all sorts of other tells. I'm sorry, but I'm looking at a woman with borderline personality disorder. And what do I see in dad? Exactly what I expected. I expected that he would either be completely absent or violent or an enabler. He appears to be an enabler. He's giving um, interviews to the New York Post. He's um, disclaiming any responsibility. I didn't see it. Uh, if the news reports are, are to, be believe, to be believed, he and his wife ignored several large red flag indicators where the kid was actually saying, I want to kill everybody. And then dad went ahead and sponsored him to get a gun. When I look at these, and I was having a conversation with a friend, and I haven't had time to go and check all the details, but she rounded up a bunch of the, uh, these young men who've done mass shootings for the past two or three years. They all fit this pattern, Jake. They all have abusive or neglectful or absent parents. There's no strong male role model in the home. A single mother who's probably overburdened and who appears to be psychologically out to lunch. Mm -hmm. What... What what can we do? Is there anything we can do to get people to start looking at these dynamics? Because God damn it, there doesn't need to be an acute quote motive, right? Yeah. We, there's no motive. Well, we don't need a note that says I hate my classmates for these specific reasons. And on this day, they insulted me. So therefore, you're not going to find that. But you are going to find a psychologically unstable young person who's been neglected or abused. Yep. What can we do to get people to start acknowledging this? And why is it so hard? I'm sorry, I will shut up after a second. But why is it so hard? And I think I have a clue about why it's so hard. Because Parents in this country are doing a terrible job, and it's not just 10% of parents. It's a lot of parents. Parents do not want to own what a bad job they are, and they are working really fucking hard to distract from anyone looking at what these parents are doing because they're afraid of its reflection on them. That's what I think. What do you think? I don't disagree with any of that. Um, here's why it's so hard, though. It, it goes beyond the what, what you just described, and it, and it speaks to... So WTTA doesn't get into policy issues. I do. Um, policy initiatives to curb any sort of unpleasant or undesirable uh, circumstance, including COVID, will always be of the politically expedient and or beneficial stripe. Uh, what you're describing, and with which I agree, is a social and societal shift and I would say it started probably in the 80s. And I will cheekily say it was the participation trophies. But it devolved. And what it, what it devolved to is boundaryless parenting. Yes, so, sir. 
So there's numerous reasons for this, and we don't need to, to get too far into the weeds, but among some of the reasons are instant gratification, self-centrism, um, inability to tolerate distress, and the ready access to avoid and evade any sort of personal responsibility, culpability, accountability. And that looks like diving into your phone, going on social media, um, checking out uh, the, the, the opportunities these days that we have to avoid intimacy yes. are overwhelmingly more prevalent than at any point in human history. Yes. Sir. So why, why does this matter with regard to policy? Well, to change that, if you want to do it through policy, which I don't even know what policy it would be. Yeah. Um, certainly, you could throw money at it, build some community centers, pull schools back together. I want um, to change the know, culture. I don't want a yeah. top-down solution. Yeah, no, you, you could do that. But the problem is you got to wait 20 or 30 years to do it. And who's, who, whose campaign does that benefit? Nobody. So what, <laughs> what, what does benefit next campaign cycle? The flimsy, gutless, uh, empty lip service law that says, uh, well, we're going to do a red flag law and it's going to catch all these people that are in between actionable, uh, you know, motivation from the, the counselor or the, the social worker, or the primary care physician, and it doesn't rise to the level of criminal uh, identification for purposes of perpetrating harm, right? So somewhere in between there is like the slightly psychological, we'll just take their guns until they're through it. Um, but they're poorly written laws, and unfortunately, they're all carbon copies of each other. And then every politician who get, passes one gets to say, look, I did something without yes. actually doing anything. And if you look at the broad data, there's not a state. Oh, they do the something, but they are, the knock-on effects, they, they you well, know, other people yeah. are, other people's interests and sometimes constitutional they, rights are punished. They don't, they don't do something positive or, or yeah. uh, edifying. Uh, if you look at broadly suicide data in this country, um, they've all, suicides have gone up since, uh, you know, 2000. Um, okay. and they really spiked among the youth in circa 2006, 2007-ish. And a lot of that... Oh, gee, the introduction of smartphones. Yep, yep. And a lot of that you can read about in Jonathan Haidt's work, H-A-I-D-T, if you're not familiar. Go to coddling, uh, the coddling.org, I think is what it is. Um, yeah, Coddling, coddling of the American Mind, Mind is his yeah. book, um, one of his books. So, so a lot of this has resulted in, um, when I say boundaryless parenting, it means there's a lot of permissiveness um, with not a lot of structure. Kids crave structure. They want to be parented. And when you when you are firm and compassionate with them, they respond very, very well. But if that's not present in the home, you're going to get uh, kids running amok, doing whatever they want to do without guidance. Um, and it's just super easy anymore. It's just really, really easy. I give talks all the time about social media and involvement and how parents can govern it and so forth. And I lean way, way, way more toward education than I do restriction on all fronts. Um, but that requires an investment. And an investment requires vulnerability. It requires the parents sitting down with the child, turning off their own damn phones, turning off their own damn TV, and going, hey, we're going to have a family dinner to together around the table, and we're going to discuss what happened through the events of the day. We're not going to just blow through dinner so we can flip the tube back on and watch whatever's on. Uh, or go, jump back on TikTok. So that's the problem. There's the problem. You've got a bunch of wandering, adrift children who now have had an entire generation of growing up not knowing how to anchor themselves, and they're craving connectedness, togetherness. And let's not even worry about the brokenness that comes from that, which is the spirit through which these, these shooters are acting. But if we can, 
I think if we can start to get people more attuned to family function in a healthy way, providing a good condu- an environment that's conducive to whole, whole wholesome upbringing and away from insta-parenting, then we'll probably make a difference, not just in suicides, but in uh, homicides as well. But the problem is, how are you going to do that unless you delay gratification? And that means the policymakers and the public elected officials, they also have succumbed to this because there's, there's, I mean, let's face it, there's no more statesmen anymore. Nobody's out there for, for the betterment of the country or their community. They're in it for themselves. And all it takes is one election cycle to get corrupted by the system that says, Hey, you know, uh, support this thing or we're not going to donate to your campaign anymore. Oh my gosh. No, never mind that 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 person's not electing you. (laughs) Your community is electing you. Right. You know, it occurs to me when you talk about things like, you know, turning off your phone, turning off the television, sitting down and actually interacting with your family and your children. I think in some sense, it goes to show how much, how, how drastically culture has changed because um, take my mother, for example, we know, you know, everybody listening knows my mother's severely personality disorder. Yet when we were children, she got worse over time. She was always bad, but she did get worse over time. But there were some things that she tried really hard to do that were the right things. And she was very insistent. We always had family dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we could not afford to eat out. We couldn't afford frozen convenience food. So my, we, we, my mother always had a home-cooked meal on the table every single night. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was to be no television. And we all sat down at the table. And yeah, we bitched and moaned about it. But, you know, our family was completely dysfunctional anyway. But we also had limits on how much TV we could watch. We were allowed to roam Cortland, New York. I could get on my bike and go anywhere I wanted. I had to be back by sundown. It, despite all the abuse, these were reasonable things that most normal parents also agreed with. Yep. Right? So even my my strongly deranged mother had those values inculcated into her. And today, you look around at parents who are not in any way abusive or unbalanced the way my mother was, and you suggest to them, even suggesting to them saying no to their children, you can see an anxiety reaction in them. All the time. All the time. It's it's in the office all the time. And I, I, I run a, an outpatient agency that has 20 two, three people working for it, 17 of which are practitioners, and we're growing, and it happens all the time. Oh, I can't get my kid to listen to him. Turn off the internet. What do you mean? He's going to blow up. And what that points to is an inability to wow. tolerate distress. So Yes. Inability to On the parents' distress. part. Yes, yes. And so inability <laughs> to tolerate distress takes, obviously, the personal form. I don't like you saying no to me, right? That's an inability to tolerate yes. distress. I don't like it that the rain is falling. I expected sun today. Uh, wah, 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 I'm going to throw a fit instead of being raised to say, well, it is what it is and I'm going to make the most of it. Um, because we never learned that over time, we bail out of the emotional wave and we say, I'm going to throw a fit. Even if that fit throwing doesn't get anywhere, which is by the way, is protesting. Protesting is a fit throwing. It doesn't okay. actually move the needle on anything. And I know there's an argument to be made that people in mass chanting at the governor's mansion can maybe result in some yeah, not really, though. Yeah, negligible policy. <laughs> but, but really what it takes is is sacrifice. That's action. It's not activism. It's action. And action yeah. takes sacrifice. Well, here's here's the other flip side of the, uh, the, the distress tolerance uh, angle. And we see this in group settings. If you're in, if you're in a counseling group, and if anybody's ever been in any group where something serious is taking place, 
Somebody becomes tearful telling a story, and almost reflexively, a hand reaches out, puts it on the thigh, or somebody runs to the Kleenex box, and goes there, there, or or we jump right to logic, right? Problem solving. Did you hire an attorney? Did you, <laughs> right? Did you call the cops? What we don't do is just sit with the person in their pain, and that's not about. All those responses are not about helping the person out of their pain. It's about me not wanting to watch you in pain. So the yes. faster I can get you out of it, so the faster right. I don't get, I don't have to tolerate it or the less time, right? You're so, so right. So it's, it, we have to teach the parents distress tolerance along the way. And the distress is watching their kid in distress. If you don't do that at a young age, good luck when he's 14. Cause now you can't even wrestle him into the, <laughs> into the bedroom anymore. It, it, it is so, it is so important. Because it's something I learned late, um, but I did learn it in terms of, of how to react to people who are in uh, distress mm. from grieving a death to um, uh, having a PTSD flashback yeah. or being extremely emotionally triggered or losing the mortgage, on whatever it is, yep. right? And for obvious reasons, my initial reaction for most of my life was to immediately work to solve that problem right now for them. That was how I could help them, right? Completely the wrong approach. I was just doing what I, I was doing what, what I was doing with my mother mm -hmm. to save myself from the emotional consequences of my mother becoming too dysregulated. I was trying to make sure that I wouldn't have, right? Even though I wasn't conscious of it. And, and, and now but when you, yeah. keep going. When you change that, when you change that, what I do now is I just listen. Mm -hmm. I will talk. And I might say something like, it's incredibly painful. I know it is. Um, and, and and not much more than that. It takes a and, strong personal constitution to do that. And we've we've lost. But it matters. It, do, it, it matters. Matter. And people, it matters to people. They really, really most of the time, really most of the time, they neither need no, and if they're if they're psychologically well enough, they should not want you to solve their problem, but they do want you to sit and listen with genuine yes. empathy. I, I mean, Norman Vincent Peale talked about that and part of you know uh, how to win friends and influence people. Uh, he he said something like, you know, the <laughs> people always called me the most interesting person, even though I just shut up and let them talk. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, and and the and the the other angle here too is that even if you could solve their problem. You've taught them nothing about their nothing. own ability to do it. And in fact, you may have created a dependent relationship, yes. right? Which you yes. you don't want. You don't want, what are you going to solve everybody's problems? That's too much of a burden to carry. So it, it's a, it's a big deal. And I, and I think if we're going to get to the, to the core of this, we have to, we have to return to personal accountability. We have to per, return to personal insight as the way through which we navigate pain in life. Life is, let's <laughs> quote, princess bride life is pain your highness um and it is and, and if we yes. don't know how to deal with it we don't know how to push through emotional wave we don't know how to get to the other side and tell our brain i've been here before i can do it again then we end up in this cluster b world because uh, that's Absolutely. that's where we are um and that's a good place to to wrap it because i know that you have things to do and you've given me a, a great deal of your time and this has been a really great conversation let's remind everybody again You've got a couple of podcasts, Noggin Notes. The other one is... Uh, <laughs> I almost said <laughs> Guns and Mental Health. I thought so, but it was so straightforward. I thought I had to be missing something. Guns and Mental Health. Yeah. 
Um, and you can also find Jake um, at the uh, practice that he owns, ZephyrWellness.org. Jake, thank you very much for your time. I am awfully glad to know you. You are one of the good guys doing the good stuff. Appreciate it, brother. Uh, back at you, and uh, we'll do this again sometime in the near future. Well, hello, listener. It's Mommy again. You're quite welcome for the fine program. Why don't you show some gratitude? Send Mommy some money on Patreon, patreon.com slash disaffected, or subscribestar.com slash disaffected. You wouldn't want Mommy to starve, would you? And if you don't love your dear mother, you're not invited to find us on YouTube, Rumble, or Odyssey for our hottest weekly content. I guess this is goodbye forever.